Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. Bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins and not to judge my brother. For thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Verily excited to be back. It's uh, Tonight should be... Uh... <laughs> Should be very fun. We're we're attempting to go to go through chapters six to ten. I I'm I'm, I'm dead set. We are going to make it through the crucifixion of Christ, and we're really going to cover each chapter appropriately, thematically, still moving through that Jesus is transfiguring uh, the temple. And so I think uh, I I really like that phrase of Jesus is transfiguring the temple because in preparation for this evening's class. I went back to an article I'd only skimmed, and the article was by a Thomas Lane, and he wrote, and this is just the first half of the title, it's uh, The Jewish Temple is Transfigured in Christ. Again, um, I'll have to send a link to this. In fact, I might have a PDF of this. It's, it's by Thomas Lane, The Jewish Temple is Transfigured in Christ, and it appeared in Antiphon. And it was volume 19 from 2015. And I'm so glad I remembered this article because uh, I've been meaning to go back and, and read it. And so I got through reading uh, pretty well half of it. And I was so glad I did because I thought, oh, thank God, someone is really going to help me in the synthesis of how on earth in 50 minutes do you cover chapter six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 of John? Because I'm set. We have five meetings. I want to make sure that we're really at least giving a strong, not just an overview, but really insight into the connection between all the chapters and the unfolding of where I had begun with, let's really focus on John 1.14 and the mystery that Jesus coming as the new temple is also simultaneously being revealed as a transfiguration. So I was super excited over the title of this article the Jewish temple is transfigured in Christ. So what I'm going to do is what I've done the past two evenings we've gotten together. Let's just read together from the first letter of John, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, as kind of the introduction. Before we read that, I'm just going to pray that Marian prayer to the Holy Spirit one time, really asking the Holy Spirit specifically for the study that uh, the Virgin Mary join us and bring the Holy Spirit that we may read these scriptures in the same spirit in which they were written. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. So the theme by which we've been laying out these evenings, we're moving from the introduction, the first meeting we were together, 
Last week, we met on the first Passover. And, and what did we cover? Well, in covering what was going on in the division of looking at the first Passover, we looked at Jesus coming by water from this reading that we have here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And here it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the witness, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So since at the first Passover, we were looking at Jesus coming by water and all the themes of water that were involved the last time we were together. So we looked at, for instance, that uh, the comparison of Jesus being called the Lamb of God, and we see the Lamb gathered at the wedding feast, <laughs> at a wedding feast. And we compared this with the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation at a wedding feast, bringing together all these themes of entrance into the temple through the Lamb. And of course, it's at this feast that Jesus turns water into wine, which is really the new wine. And we discuss this in terms of following that Jesus then goes to the temple at the first Passover that's mentioned in John's gospel. Jesus goes to the temple and overturns the tables. And, and here I discuss Jesus is the new wineskins, the new temple visiting the temple, Jesus who is going to become the new sacrifice, overturning the tables, preventing the sacrifices of that day, and Jesus who himself is the new priest. Um, one thing I didn't mention, when I, I kept bringing up this aspect of wine, and I said Jesus turns water into the new wine, and, and I probably should have drawn that even more when I discussed from Matthew's gospel that Jesus makes clear that you don't put old wine into new wineskins, but you pour, I'm sorry, you don't put new wine into old wineskins, but you put new wine into new wineskins. And of course, this is Jesus talking about pouring out the Spirit. Isn't it interesting? Take a look real quickly, if you would, flipping around. Take a look at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost occurs and the apostles all go out preaching to all the people gathered, all the nations that are gathered hear them, hear them preaching in their own language. And what's so interesting is at the very end of all of this, it says in verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Isn't it interesting that at the very birth of the new wineskins, you have someone who doesn't believe. It's kind of like Caiaphas, the high priest, that it's better for one man to die than the entire nation. And John comments and he says, he did not know that he prophesied at that time. And so similarly, this person mocking is pointing out to us the new wineskins, the church has been formed. The Holy Spirit has been poured into the apostles as the very structures through which Jesus, the Lamb of God, which is wishes to join us in and make available to us the true temple of God, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. That was something I had still wanted to bring in, and I don't think I brought in when we were having that discussion the last time we were together. Um, we then moved into chapter 3, 
So moving from the overturning the tables in chapter two to chapter three, still dealing with the division of what all happens between the first Passover and the second Passover that we're about to look at tonight. So still in chapter three, we see the theme of water where he talks about a new baptism he's going to institute so that we can be born again of water and the spirit. And I connected it to his dying. That it was very interesting after talking about this baptism, he right away goes to a talk about his death and being like the bronze serpent. And we discussed that in this aspect, that the very power of this baptism given to us is going to be given to us by the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's what's going to enable him to give us the spirit in the waters that then enters into us by baptism. I then discussed in chapter four, again, Jesus is the new temple. Uh, he discussed we'll neither worship the Father on the mountains in Samaria nor the mountain in Jerusalem. And then he discussed this aspect of he would have given a water that would have been fulfilling and would have been the source of all water, a fountain welling up inside of us, which was, again, discussion from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, about the messianic temple that was to come. And then in chapter five, we closed by reiterating, and we said, notice how Jesus is going back to proofs that through all of his claims, he's going back to proofs that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's why he heals on the Sabbath. And, and it's because the father's at work until now. And so he's at work until now, as the father has life in himself. So he's given the son to have life in himself. And we concluded. So now we pick up in chapter six. And this is where I wanted to revisit a little bit because that was about first letter of John chapter five, verses six to eight. I was, I was just trying to emphasize a theme of he came by water. And I was showing that in the first Passover. Now in the second Passover, it's very interesting. He's going to come by blood. He's going to show how in becoming the new temple, he becomes and is replacing all the bloody sacrifices. And so at the second Passover, I want to emphasize this theme of he came by blood. And in order to do this, I'm going to visit a little bit of some of the things brought up in the Thomas Lane article. And I want to revisit his overthrowing of the table in the temple when, when we were, were reading in chapter two that at the first Passover, he overthrows the money changer's table. I want to go into that meaning a little bit now more because he's now setting up his table, his table for sacrifices. When he discusses, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And so in order to grasp what Jesus is doing and the connection between the table, I wanted you to read with me a little bit from Exodus chapter 29, because I think this draws out a little bit more when John the Baptist points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God, it's not just about the Passover lamb. It's also about the daily sacrifices of the morning lamb and the evening lamb that Jesus is replacing when he overthrows the money changers' tables. And so if you take a look in Exodus chapter 29, we see the whole sacrifice, the daily offerings that are described in chapter 29 of Exodus, verse 38. So again, it says, This is what you shall offer upon the altar two lambs a year old, a year old, day by day. So two lambs, one year old, day by day, continually. So this is the continual sacrifices that Jesus replaces with his one time sacrifice because it's effective and efficacious for all times. 
One lamb, verse 39, one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a libation. So with the lamb, you're to offer something that becomes bread when cooked, a cereal offering, and wine. Notice the bread and wine that are with the offering of the lamb. And this is what Jesus is going to transform into himself under the appearance of bread and wine. He's going to bring about the very sacrifices of the lamb. Because behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not merely the Passover. He's not merely replacing the Passover. He's also replacing these daily sacrifices. Verse 41, and the other lamb shall offer in the evening and offer with a cereal offering and its libation as in the morning. So again, bread and wine. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tent of meeting before the Lord. Well, what is Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 14. That, that verb there, eskanun, in which it's saying, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and pitched his tent, referring to the tent of meeting. He is the true tent of meeting, and inside of him takes place the true sacrifice. There I will meet the sons of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. So this is this is what needs to be drawn out about what Jesus is bringing an end to the overturning of the tables. And so I, I bring to you a, a little clip, an excerpt that Thomas Lane includes in his article, The Jewish Temple is Transfigured in Christ, where he goes to Rabbi Nusner's writing. He goes to an article, The Money Changers in the Temple, the Mishnah's explanation. So in other words, what does the Talmud have to say about the money changers in the temple? Now, this is the same Rabbi Neusner that Benedict XVI uses in his first volume of Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to hear the explanation that Neusner gives about the overthrowing of Jesus in chapter 2 of John's Gospel when he overthrows the temple. It says, consequently, according to Neusner, payment of the half-shekel temple tax allowed people to participate in the daily whole offering and atonement for sin. That's what I just read right there, the daily whole offering in Exodus chapter 29. Nusner agrees with the common interpretation that Jesus overturning the tables signifies the destruction of the temple, but he also offers an additional interpretation, and this is what's so relevant for John chapter 6. So if you look this up, uh, this article, which I'll make sure I send over here to the Institute of Catholic Culture, I'm on page 21. So make a little note if you're like, I want to read that. It's on page 21 of this article. And he says, this is now Rabbi Nusner, as a Jew looking externally upon the gospel, not as a believer. He says, for the overturning of the money changers tables represents an act of the rejection of the most important right of the Israelite cult, the daily whole offering and therefore a statement that there is a means of atonement other than the daily whole offering, which now is null. By overthrowing it like he did, he's making it null. Because he comes, even though they don't know he's the Son of God, they know he's coming as a prophet. 
And they're trying to come to the realization this is the Messiah, and the Messiah is the Son of God. Then what was to take the place of the daily whole offering? It was to be the rite of the Eucharist. Table for table. Whole offering for whole offering. It therefore seems to me that the correct context in which to read the overturning of the money changers' tables is not the destruction of the temple in general. Because remember, Jesus is the temple. He's not destroying the temple. He's bringing about the true temple. So he says, it's not the destruction of the temple in general, but the institution of the sacrifice of the Eucharist in particular. That's what Jesus is, is showing, that he's instituting something. It further follows that the counterpart of Jesus' negative action in overturning one table must be his affirmative action in establishing or setting up another table. That is to say, I turn to the passion narrative centered upon the Last Supper. So in other words, the one thing, one of the few things that are different in John's gospel, there's no narrative, there is no narrative of the institution of take this all of you and eat it, this is my body, take this all of you and drink of it, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. That narrative is not in John. Why? Because he's giving us the theological explanation of it instead. He's giving a speech Jesus truly gave, John chapter 6, something Jesus really said to his disciples. Therefore, we can pick up the theological meaning of what he was doing in instituting his body and blood at the institution narrative. And so Nusner ends this commentary by saying, at any rate, that at any rate is how an outsider to scholarship in this field, I should suggest we read the statement. The negative is that the atonement for sin achieved by the daily whole offering is null, and the positive, that atonement for sin is achieved by the Eucharist. One table overturned, another table set up in place and both for the same purpose of atonement and expiation of sin. I think that's the context we need to read right now, what's happening in one John, I'm sorry, in John chapter 6. Now, I also wanted to say there's we could spend hours in John chapter 6. I'm now tasked with taking us from John chapter 6 through John chapter 10. So obviously, I can't go through great detail. But I think I can bring us in depth into following a certain line of thought that is connecting everything. And that's what I'd like to do with you. In other words, I trust that many of you have been in these kinds of studies with Father Hezekiah and that you have done many studies of your own. So I'm going to skip a lot to get to what I think are the main points. So just like before Jesus before Jesus overturns the tables of the temple, he turns water into wine, showing that he's the one that through him, the spirit is going to be given. That he is going to give the simplification of all rituals that don't merely evoke faith, but rather give the Holy Spirit so that we can have true faith. Sacraments that truly are effective by their union with Christ, where Christ unites us with himself. Not figures of things to come, but the very participation in realities under the appearance of signs, but the signs themselves being the realities of the kingdom itself that we get to participate in. 
And so we see in John chapter 6, we see what precedes these very miracles in which Jesus is about to talk about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He multiplies bread. The multiplication of the loaves precedes it. And the people want to rush out and make him a king. They're convinced that this is, these are the signs that the Messiah was to perform. And it says in verse 15, chapter 6, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the hills by himself. So the multiplication, so bread, it's a bread miracle. And so we know bread is associated with the daily offering, that cereal offering and wine offerings are supposed to be done. We know that this is taking place, if you see in John chapter 6, verse 4. When, when is chapter 6 taking place? Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So what does he do? A bread miracle. Something that certainly is going to relate to the daily offering. Something that relates to the showbread. That's in front of the Holy of Holies. That reminds them of the bread that came down from heaven that fed the people. And that's why the people are going to remember this and connect. And Jesus is going to discuss, um, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven that a man may eat and never die. And Jesus is going to connect that by saying, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life that he says here in John chapter 6, verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So a food that gives eternal life. So something that means you will not have to experience separation from God in death. A separation from God will not have to be experienced. So this leads me to the discussion of the second miracle. He walks on water. And so it says very clearly here in John chapter 6, verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, Ego eimi. So here the translation in Greek, Ego eimi. But here it says, It is I. It's missing the double word play. Brant Peachy writes very well about this. He has some, some works. I always go blank. I'm trying to remember the one word. Um, so Jesus, in terms, is more an apologetical work on Jesus. And he discusses, why does Jesus, it say, Jesus passed by. Jesus went to pass by them. And in, in Hebrew, apparently, this is, an ex, it, it calls back to the Hebrew mind when God passed by Moses to reveal his divine nature. And so Jesus intends to pass by in Mark is a phrase saying he's revealing his divinity. So in other words, when Jesus, first thing that he says to them is, I am, fear not, it has a double meaning. Yes, it can mean it is I, but in the Greek, it always means I am. And we're going to have a culmination of all these I am statements, ego a me, in John 8, 58, where he's going to make very clear before Abraham was, ego a me, the exact language here being translated as it is I, it's very clear it should be properly translated, I am. And they understand what he's saying, that he's claiming to be God 
before the world was made. He has a pre-existence as the Logos. And the, you know they understood him correctly, because in John chapter 8, verse 59, it says they picked up rocks to stone him to death. And that's the very same thing in John chapter 5, when he says, the, when he says the father's at work until now and I'm at work, it says they picked up stones to stone him to death. And they said, he said, well, why are you doing this? And they say, because you, a man, make yourself to be God. So it's very clear what he's claiming, and I don't think we should miss what he's saying here. All through chapter 6 through chapter 9, he's trying to show why he has the right to replace temple rituals because he's trying to explain who he really is. He is the temple. He is God dwelling amongst them. And that's what we have to catch from John chapter 6 through John chapter 9. And now he's showing in John chapter 6 how he's replacing the daily sacrifices with his one-time sacrifice. And he's going to give him a new bread. And he's going to combine, he's going to combine the bread and wine. We already know at the Last Supper, which is not included in John's gospel, the institution narrative. The very bread and wine at the Last Supper, he says, are him, his flesh, his blood. In other words, he's becoming the lamb of sacrifice. And so, yes, he's becoming the new Passover leading a new Exodus, but he's also replacing now this daily offering that you see happening in the temple. And so what two miracles, well, what does it mean to walk on water? It means water in the Old Testament always represents in the Psalms, if I'm going under the waters, I've fallen into the pit, oh Lord, rescue me. In other words, I'm dying. To remain under the waters means to represent death. And this is why it's so important to recognize that Jesus, in walking on water, is saying, I have power over death. That's what it symbolically means. And he's about to give him the teaching, if you want to partake in my power over death, then I am the true bread from heaven, and you must eat me to take my life into you. So just as you saw me walk, just as you saw me multiply bread, and you saw me walk on water, showing I have power over death and power over my own body, I'm going to give you a food, a new bread, that will give you power over death, that a man may eat and never die. That's why these two miracles proceeded. It's very interesting. In Matthew chapter 6, a little plug to an old ICC professor, uh, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, I remember when he was teaching the Gospel of Mark, and it always stuck out to me very strongly. Take a look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. After Jesus multiplies the bread and walks on water, he gets into the boat with his disciples. And it says, verse 51, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Again, I'm in Mark, chapter 6, verse 51. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In other words, there's a direct connection of what he did with the bread and walking on the water that they come to the realization of, whoa, this guy's not just a guy. This guy's somehow from above. He's divine. And they couldn't pick up that the multiplication of bread 
was already a major sign of his demonstrating his divinity. It took the walking on the water for them to really grasp the meaning of who he is. And of course, it's after this that we have Peter's profession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Having seen the multiplication of the bread and the walking on the water brings about Peter's profession of faith. Now then, following all of this, Jesus makes very clear. It's interesting when he institutes this. Take a look of what he says after having said, don't labor for the food in verse 27, that perishes but the food that endures to eternal life. The people say to him in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, so what is what is the real sign? Excuse me, what is the real work? And it's very interesting that he says, they say, what work must we do? And they don't use the same Greek word here. I do think it is the ergo, the, the work. They, they don't use the term later, later gia, liturgy. But what is the work of God? What is the liturgy? The liturgy is the public work we do to further God's kingdom. And it's at this point of the question of what work must we do? He says, you must believe in the one whom God has sent. That's your work. And this whole chapter is about Will you believe in me and my words when I tell you, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? Because what is the very liturgy Jesus establishes other than the establishment of his body and his blood, which is our work, to join him in his one-time offering so that we can be sanctified by the only sanctifier, Jesus, who gives us the Holy Spirit through his flesh, and through his blood, and continues his work in us. And so you see this whole dialogue moves on about the bread in the desert with Moses, and Jesus is the true bread that comes down. And he makes very clear that he is going to give us eternal life. But I need to move and skip down to verse 41. The Jews murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? In other words, they think they know his origins, but they don't. And this is the theme through all of chapter 7. Well, don't we know his origins? And isn't the Messiah, we're not supposed to know where his origins are from? And the whole point is, you don't really know where his origins are from. John began his gospel, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And Annie already drew this out in your pre-discussion, John 1, 14, the most important verse in the prologue. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, his origin is from heaven. John's already told us his origin, but he's letting us watch the crowd who thinks they know his origin, but are constantly wrong. And so by their false beliefs, prevent themselves from faith. So notice again, Jesus continues teaching them. And he says in verse 47, he calls for faith. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He's calling on Christians, in fact. John is telling Christians, you must believe this teaching. It was hard for the original audience. It's still hard on you. 
and in 100 AD when I'm writing this, or a few years before, I already know what's happening in Smyrna. I already know why uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch is writing his, is going to have to write his seven letters, because there's people among you who are denying that the bread becomes my true flesh, because they don't want to accept this aspect of true flesh. John's addressing this here. He's making very clear. How should you understand the bread and wine? Is it just a sign? No, it is the mystery of Christ's ascended body. Let me just skip real quickly before Jesus says all this, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He gives one key statement by which we have to understand all of this. And the key statement is his ascension. In other words, all that he's about to say about you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, it's shocking. But the more shocking thing that's going to confirm this to you, that in fact you can believe everything I've said, is my ascension. Because my ascension is what's going to make possible that this bread becomes my body and this wine becomes my blood, because in my ascended body, I am now glorified. I have become a life-giving spirit. That whole point we were making, that at the transfiguration, Jesus is showing the glory that belongs to him by nature, and that's already in his soul. But the glory he wouldn't let his flesh possess until he brought his flesh into total sacrifice. He wanted to join us in our dying. And so he had to he had to have a body that was able to die because his glory had not been communicated to the body, to the flesh. And that's why his flesh is becoming a sacrifice. His flesh is outside the temple. His soul is in the temple. He's God. But he didn't let the glory go to his flesh. So his flesh has become an offering for 30 years of obedience. And he's going to bring it to the obedience of the cross that the world may know he loves the Father and always says yes to the Father because the Father is life. And the Father has given him to be life. And he's going to give life to his flesh by surrendering it to the will of God. So that in his resurrection, in his ascension, what happens at his ascension? All the glory that was in his soul is given permanently to the flesh now, and his flesh can never die, and it's life-giving flesh. Life-giving flesh, life-giving blood. And so he says in John chapter 6, verse 62, when they're really upset with him over this teaching of, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, all of this is connected to my ascension. All of it. That's why my flesh can become a food and my blood can become a drink. But you won't believe and you won't look at my miracles and listen. And all of you are trying to run off and make me king. You're so convinced that I'm your savior, but you don't want me as your savior, is what he's saying. You don't want me as your savior. You want your own kind of savior. And you must give up what you think the savior should be and understand what I am as the Savior. I have come to destroy sin, sin and death, because sin leads to death. You think you're free, and all of chapter 7 and 8, he's going to make very clear, you're not free because you are in sin, and the true deliverer is going to free you from sin, and I've come to free you from sin and death. 
You've been looking for saviors in all the wrong places. That's Jesus' message. That's why he won't let them believe in him on their terms. And so he gives a very difficult saying, and he says, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Notice not dead bread, living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So understand it all in terms of what I was saying about the glory in his soul not yet belonging to his flesh and why his flesh is a sacrifice of the human will. There's tons of double meanings in this. Verse 52, the Jews disputed amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus, who was not shy about throwing over the tables in the temple, not shy at all, says, okay, I'm going to overthrow your idols of who you think the Messiah is. You're going to believe on my terms, not your terms. You're going to make an act of faith, not in what makes you comfortable, but an act of faith in the true Son of God, which is beyond your human powers. It's not in your power. Faith is a gift from God, not something you give yourself by philosophical reasoning. Yes, philosophy is important. Good logic is important. Metaphysics is important. But philosophy doesn't give you eternal life. It's a gift from God. So Jesus is going to cast over all the idols of all the people. Okay, how am I going to do it? Well, let me be really clear about what I mean. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's at least two sayings. I will raise him on the last day. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, say, who eats me will live because of me. Again, in verse 58, he who eats this bread will live forever. Six to seven times at least, he makes clear, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he makes clear when they're upset by this, scandalized by it, who can hear this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I'm not just a man. In other words, you're not getting this. And then he says, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. What's he saying here? You must understand this more in terms of how I'm going to give the Holy Spirit to you. He's not saying just spiritualize what I said. That's not what he's saying. He has said six times at least seven to nine times altogether about being the bread that comes down from heaven you must eat. So he has repeated and repeated and repeated, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. The only correction he's giving is, I'm going to do this so I can give you the spirit. How does John, in his first letter, explain Christ's coming? He comes by water, he comes by blood, he comes by the spirit. The spirit, the blood, and the water, and these three are one. In other words, he's going to give you the spirit through this eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. This is not a metaphor for something else. He is very clear he is going to institute that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. When he says it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no avail— we have to remember what St. Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Jesus became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam became a living being, verse 45, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What does that mean? Well, Jesus has a body in heaven, but that body has now been made subject to grace, to glory. In other words, it's already in the fullness of grace, but it didn't possess the glory of his soul revealed in the transfiguration. Once his flesh is subject to the glory, it's subject to the spirit. So in giving us his flesh and giving us his blood that is in heaven, he is giving us the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what he meant. He really meant he's going to establish something that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood by becoming for us a new bread of life and replacing the daily sacrifices of a lamb that had to be accompanied with the sacrifice of bread and wine or a cereal offering and wine. So notice it's at this moment, the question comes up and the people don't believe. And it says, verse 66, isn't it very interesting? I always thought it was interesting. To abandon Jesus' teaching on the Eucharist is connected with the number 666. Now, I, that's just coincidental. Uh, certainly the number 666 points to Kaiser Nero in its, in its instance in the book of Revelation. The number 666 is very clearly and can be demonstrated very clearly. Its first instance is a direct reference to Nero as the persecutor of Christians. That's a whole nother study. I, I do think it's interesting here. It's over this teaching. It says, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the 12, will you also go away? In other words, I'm willing to lose you too. In other words, take a look. He lets those people walk away, and he doesn't say, come back, come back, you misunderstood me. I mean, he did this in a synagogue. Can you imagine if a priest gave a homily like this, and the whole congregation leaves him, if he was speaking in similes and metaphors, he would have said, come back, come back, you totally misunderstood me. Jesus doesn't say, come back, you misunderstood me. He even turns to the remaining people and says, do you want to leave too? In other words, this teaching is so central to everything I am and everything I'm doing. It is the summit and climax of the Christian faith to what it means to have faith in Jesus. Without believing in the Eucharist, you don't have faith in Jesus. You have very immature faith of faith at all, which is the very point of Ignatius of Antioch's letter to the Smyrnans, where Bishop Polycarp, who was a disciple and a hearer of John the Apostle, supports the letter clearly. It's all being reflected right here in John chapter 6. And it's at this moment, and it's over this teaching, instead of leaving Jesus, Judas stayed even though he no longer believed at this moment. Because it says right here, did I not choose you the 12 and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, the one who would betray him. And when does Judas betray him? Moments before Jesus institutes and takes bread and says, this is my body, and takes wine and says, this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It's that very night of this institution that Judas is filled with the devil and goes out into the darkness. 
and into the night to betray Jesus. Very interesting how all of this for John is brought out for us. So key to John chapter 6 is you have to believe in me, Jesus Christ. I am the source of the life. That true faith in me is something that I determine, not something you determine. <laughs> because faith is not generated by humans. Faith is generated by God. And that's the importance of what we see going in here in John chapter 7 in the Feast of Tabernacles. I wanted to draw out some points as well that are in this article by Thomas Lane. And he does a very wonderful job of demonstrating to us John chapter 7. He makes very clear, you'll notice just above verse 10, it's very clear that this is the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus is going to stand up in verse 37, it says, take a look at verse 37 in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, what day? What feast? The Feast of Tabernacles. Well, what's going on with the Feast of Tabernacles? Every morning, every morning, the Feast of Tabernacles, that week, they go out, the priests go in a procession with, with flasks, and they go to the pool of Siloam. And they fill their flasks with water, and they put them in silver bowls, and they process dumping that water around the altar. And the Feast of Tabernacles is all about the 40 years in the wilderness of God providing for the people in the wilderness. And so they, they put up their, their wooden shacks to remember what it was like living in the desert, and they camp out, and they recall the 40 years of God's providence for them wandering 40 years in the desert. And so two of the rituals that are that are in the morning and in the evening, in the morning they remember the rock that that accompanied them that St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The rock that followed them, the rock that Moses struck and outpoured water. So the remembrance of that water is they go to the pool of Siloam, they get the water and then with silver bowls, they, they do a libation, the pouring of the water around the altar. Remember how God gave them water. And in the evening, they light four giant candelabras. And they put them out in the evening in the court area of the temple, the women's area. And it lights up the whole temple precincts. And it's full of lights everywhere. And so at the very end of this festival, Jesus says, in other words, I'm the rock that you drank from. He says, he says in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, that rock was a prefigurement of me who is going to give you the true living waters that I spoke of in chapter four, because I'm the true temple. I'm the messianic temple of Ezekiel chapter 47. Out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit which will be given to those who believe, uh, who were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in other words, this connects us with John chapter 6. What if you receive the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, you can't, you're not grasping who I am, but at my ascension you will. And that, and John is telling us it's at Jesus' glorification, his death, resurrection, and ascension, that he's become for us the life-giving spirit who pours out from his flesh and blood the spirit upon us. 
But what's so interesting is the next day after this festival, and some people did celebrate a day beyond the festival of tabernacles, particularly the diaspora Jews did celebrate an additional day beyond it. So all the Jews around the world are gathered in Jerusalem at this time, and he's making himself known. I'm passing over the part about the woman caught in adultery, and I just want to bring up to you, notice Jesus then says in chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Well, what was the tabernacle? What was the evening lighting of the four candelabras, the giant candelabras that lit up the court? What was that commemorating during the 40 years of wandering? The great pillar, that's it, the pillar of fire. So wherever the pillar of fire went, the people were to follow. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in other words, stay with me, gather with me, because I am the true temple. I am the true gathering space. I am the true life-giving waters, and my flesh is the true life-giving sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sins. All of this, all of these discussions are centered on chapter 8, verse 31. He's trying to tell them who he really is, but you can only understand chapter 8, verses 31 through 38 if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 63 through 64, which is where I'm going to have to conclude. I see that we're, I, want, I need to bring this together in five minutes. Well, Jesus says to the Jews who believed, who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And you're like, what? What? What do you mean? Aren't you the Hebrew slaves that were in Egypt? Have you forgotten this? You've been in slavery. Jesus, we're the sons of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You're in your sins. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Well, what's he talking about? that the slave did not continue in the house forever. Well, after they worshiped, God wanted them all to come into the tent of meeting. He wanted all of them to enter the cloud. You're to be a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. But that priesthood got stripped from Israel at the worship of the golden calf. At that moment, they lost the sonship. And the pedagogue of the old law, the pedagogue, what St. Paul calls in Galatians 4, a covenant of slavery. Even though they were sons, they were being treated no better than slaves because they were put under a strict law, a pedagogue. And Jesus is really saying to them, I'm going, I'm the son, and I can give you entrance back into the house of God. You'll no longer be slaves, but you'll be made free when I give you entrance back into the temple. That's what all my discussion of chapter 6, eat my flesh and drink my blood and eternal life and you'll never die. That's my conversation of come drink from me is all about. But what he's pointing to in this discussion of they're like, whoa, whoa we've never been slaves. And, and Jesus is saying, no, if you're a slave to sin, you're a slave and you're outside of God's house. 
What's this all about? It's all about Isaiah chapter 63. Flip if you would, Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to start in verse 17. I want to read from Isaiah 63, verse 17, to Isaiah 64, verse 7. And see how Jesus is actually trying to point them to understand who they are through Isaiah 63 and 64. O Lord, verse 17, chapter 63, why do you make us err from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Remember, they're trying to kill Jesus. They have no fear of him. And their hearts are hardened. And Jesus is pointing right to this. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. Well, the word became flesh and is dwelling among you. He's pitched the tent, the sanctuary that you lost. That the mountains may quake at your presence as when the kindles, brushwood, and fire cause water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries. Verse 3, when you did terrible things, which we looked not for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you. And here he is in their midst, visible. And here's the key. Verse 5, you meet him that joyfully works righteousness those that remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? In other words, we know we're in our sins. This is the whole point that the Messiah comes to save them from their sins. Verse 6, we have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In other words, what did God say before you enter my sanctuary? What must you do? You must bathe and wash your garments. And Jesus has just said, I'm implementing a new baptism. You're going to come to me to drink. And he's about to demonstrate, I am the true feast you're celebrating. I was the one, God, who accompanied you, who sheltered you. Come to me and drink. I am the light of the world. But they won't believe. And so what does he do in chapter 9? In chapter 9, he brings together all of the imagery of water and light to prove he's the true temple. Take a look at John chapter 9. And this is where I'll end, and we'll resume this the next time we're together. John chapter 9, he sees a blind man, verse 1, blind from birth. They ask him about who sinned, and he's very clear, no one. It was to manifest the glory of God. And verse verse 5, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's picking back up on the close of the Feast of Tabernacles. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Where at the Feast of Tabernacles do the priests go to get the water for the water libation, the pool of Siloam. Jesus is saying he is the true pool because what he does, he takes his own water, spit. He shows it's life-giving by mixing it with Adama, clay. 
He gives sight to the blind man through his spittle, renewing him that he may see, that he may see. In other words, the light of the world by healing blindness shows that through his waters, he restores healing and light. The, the eyes are now alive and he enlightens someone by his own water. Jesus is enlightening a blind man. So he has brought together the imagery of water and light from the Feast of Tabernacles and is revealing he is the life-giving temple. And still his body's not even yet glorified and he's already the life-giving temple. It's also another prefigurement of baptism. When we enter into the waters of baptism, what happens? The Spirit enters us so that we can see. And so Jesus now can give the Spirit through water and blood. The Spirit in the waters of baptism enters into us and enlightens us. That's why we've always referred to baptism as enlightenment. And notice how Jesus concludes the meaning of the healing of this man. And so in John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus explains to this man who now has faith in him, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Notice how it's all the people who can see his miracles won't believe, but the blind man does believe. And so even the blind can see that Christ is the true light of the world, while those who claim to be the leaders don't see the light when it's in their midst and don't recognize the fulfillment of Isaiah 63 and 64 while it's happening in front of their very eyes. Now, certainly there's way more we can say. I mean, there's so much more to go into. Um, I'll try to pick up some things I haven't been able to go into next week. We're going to go into Jesus giving the Spirit, his discussion of the resurrection and the life, and we're going to read chapters 11 to 15 together. So be ready next week. We're reading chapters 11 to 15. So you might want to read ahead. I'll try and go back and draw out a few things we don't have time to go into, but I'm trying to keep us on that schedule of showing this unity between all of the, all of John. So forgive me for not going into more depth in terms of, of each chapter in depth, but I think we can find a depth by showing the unity of all the chapters. I'll have to pick up on that point in John chapter 10, where he makes very clear that he's God. And the statements, again, re-verifying everything about he's the temple because he's God. All right, well, thank you for joining me, and we'll open up the floor to questions for this evening. Thank you so much, Dr. Zakonikas. That was awesome. Thank you so much. So we'll um, move over into the Q&A here, Dr. Zakonikas. Uh, let's start with a, a question from Tom. He says, Jews today are scandalized by Jesus's teaching in chapter six because they maintain that it violates the prescription to not consume blood. So how is this view erroneous? It's erroneous for many levels, but it has to we'd have to begin in the Old Testament with why the prescriptions against drinking blood were originally done, because originally the drinking of blood is connected with false pagan practices in which they were trying to connect with demonic spirits. And the belief was that through the drinking of blood, they united themselves to 
um, a god or an Egyptian god, or they entered into some kind of communion. And Jesus is actually saying, in a sense, I am the one true God. I am the fulfillment of the God you've been awaiting. And so there is actually going to be a communion. It's going to be a communion in my blood. And it is scandalous. It is absolutely scandalous to the Jew because we see we see the very response. The first response of the Jews, we have to recall, is this guy is definitely the prophet. He is the fulfillment of all Moses told us to look for, according to Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. He is performing the miracles. He must be the Christ. We want to make him into the king. In other words, he is Messiah. Therefore, he is the true king of the world. And they we're going to rush to make him king. So in other words, they're trying to give a mere human faith to Jesus. And Jesus is going to demand, once again, his point is, you need to have faith in me and in my words, not what you want to turn my words into. It's not in man's power to give himself faith in me. I pour out the spirit. I desire you to have faith, but it's not in your power to give faith to yourself on your terms. So Jesus is, in fact, making them break with Moses' law. And he's not making them break with it, though, until his death and resurrection, which proves he is the one true God, that he is the true temple by his manifestation at the transfiguration and by his ascension into heaven in front of 500 Jews, and by leaving the empty tomb as a symbol, as a sign, I should say, a sign that somehow, even under a guard, he left the tomb and no one stopped him. So they knew they had to deal with the guards, and they paid off the guards. And for some people, they, they get stuck just at that. But Jesus then allows, and this is very key, in chapter 5 of Acts, and I think it's chapter 12. Chapter 5, they throw the apostles into a prison under guards while the Sanhedrin deliberates, and an angel releases them. And all of a sudden, when they go looking for them in the jail, they can't find the apostles. What's that representative of? It's the same as Jesus. Being stuck in jail is like being placed in a tomb. And there are guards on the jail, and somehow the apostles got out, and no one knew how they got out when there were guards at the jail. In chapter 12, they do the same thing with Peter, and they figure, well, we don't know how. We don't know why they got out in chapter 5 of Acts. So we're going to stick Peter between two guards with guards at the front of the jail. And sure enough, an angel takes Peter Doors remain locked, walks between guards, out of the jail, out of the other entrance, through another guards. And when they go to find Peter again, they're like, everything's locked. All the guards are still there. What's it a sign of? All these escapes are reminding them of Jesus, who's no longer in the tomb. So the Sanhedrin has been witnessed to at least three times of empty tombs. And so the proof has been given. Does this scandalize you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So in other words, you're not eating dead flesh. You're not drinking dead blood. You are receiving communion in the one true God who through and professing faith in the true Messiah, who has conquered death in his flesh and in his blood. And so his flesh and blood are life-giving because they are inseparable from the glory of being at the right hand 
of the Father, and therefore, in order to profess Jesus as Messiah and to live according to faith instead of mere human opinion, to live by faith in Christ means to accept his teaching on his body and blood. Otherwise, you're lacking true faith. You're lacking true life-giving faith. Well, with that in mind, kind of a follow-up, Maureen asks, how do Protestants interpret John 6? Because it seems pretty obvious that he meant what he said. You know, it's kind of hard. You know, we can't say the Jews because there's so many sects amongst the Jews about differences of what they believe today. And it's even hard these days to say Catholics, sadly, because um, too many Catholics are getting away with not holding to the one faith, one Lord, one baptism. When we say Protestants, it gets even more difficult. As you know, there's thousands of sects amongst the Protestants. Most of them will simply say it's a spiritual meaning, that we think on Jesus' death. We think about wanting Jesus. They have not accepted the difference between the rituals of the Old Testament and the rituals of the New Testament. They think that somehow, since faith is spiritual, they've fallen into a kind of Gnosticism that spiritual is opposed to materiality. And so they don't see the need for any rituals that involve materiality because true spirituality is just rationality. And therefore, we're just thinking about Jesus' death and life and his wanting to be with us when we eat this bread and drink this cup. But that is not the teaching. The true teaching of Jesus is, I'm the true temple. The temple was rebuilt in three days, and you have entrance into this temple through faith. The faith that allows you to accept that my body and blood, according to Hebrews 10, my flesh has become the new curtain that you must pass through to enter the Holy of Holies where I am in heaven. Because I promised in chapter 14, I go away, but I do not leave you orphans. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you also may be. I will come back to you, and I will take you to myself. That is eating his flesh and drinking his blood, because it's not dead flesh. It's not dead blood. It's the risen blood and body and blood of Jesus that cannot be destroyed. And therefore, it is the true passageway into the fullness of the Spirit cleansing us of sin and furthering our sanctification, according to 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5, furthering our sanctification, until, according to Ephesians 4, we have grown and developed into the fullness of Christ the head, that we have grown into him in every way. He gives a food from heaven, a food which the Son of Man will give you. Why well, only know of one food that Jesus established? He said, do this. He took bread and said, this is my body. He took wine and said, this is my blood. He's God, and by his word, it happens. And therefore, Protestants, in their effort to break away from the Middle Ages in which Rome and its secular authority was so ingle-mingled in their lives, if they permitted priests who were united with Rome to continue in their country— then they'd fall, they'd, they'd fall right back into some of the temporal things that weren't so comfortable of temporal power of the popes back then. So the only way to eliminate 
the idea that priests were needed was to eliminate that the sacraments were needed. And so in that, that mix of politics and religion, they chose ultimately a theology that would keep priests out of their countries. And so this is why Protestants have been brought up in a theology that does not accept the truth of what Jesus is as the new temple and the true lamb who brings us while on earth into the Holy of Holies by the realities under signs, the sacramental worldview that Jesus himself established. Um, just quickly, uh, we got a question about uh, the Brant Petrie book that you mentioned. Okay, I, I was trying to think myself about this, Dr. Zakonikas. So he has Jesus in the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, but I assume that's not the one. That'd be great. I mean, that's always great on the Eucharist. It's not that one. Um, Jesus, the bridegroom. No. That's the one about the crucifixion. Is it the case for Jesus? The that case you're for Jesus. Up? That's the one where okay, Jesus, that's what I thought. Jesus pass, passing by, passing the meaning of Jesus passing by in reference to God passing by Moses yeah. and declaring his name. And you notice Jesus says, I am. So giving credit where credit's due on that one. Work that he that he. But I've seen Jesus. pieces of Jesus, the, the Eucharist and the Jewish roots. I've seen at least, I've read some pages from there. Uh, <laughs> he's a great writer. Yeah. Um, and I would definitely recommend it from the few pages that I've read. And I've heard other people who've read it who said it was mind blowing. So I'd certainly recommend that. Okay, so one more question here. Um, let's go to Bill. He says, what is the significance of the I am statements in John chapter eight? Well, it, it goes all the way again um, from six. And he keeps bringing up the people keep saying questions about won't we know his origins when the, the Christ origin. We, we already know Jesus origins, but the Christ, we're not supposed to know his origins. And this is where clearly no one knows about the virgin birth, which keeps pointing to, no, you don't know. This is what John's trying to get them to see. And so Jesus keeps saying, if you don't, if you're going to die in your sins unless you believe I am. And so it's got a double meaning. Um, he's clearly saying, you're going to have to come to the reality eventually that I'm Yahweh. I am the God you have worshipped without knowing the mystery that I'm three persons. So he keeps saying, unless you believe that ego a me, I am. Now, we keep getting translations that say, I am he, or it is I. But really, the Greek is intentional to have a double play. Yes, it's me, Jesus, and Jesus is the I am, which culminates in chapter 8. They keep saying, why won't you tell us who you really are and where you're from? And he says, actually, in chapter 8, I, I am not from below. You're from below. I am from above. And that whole comment in chapter 8 then proceeds through the you must believe I am. But then they, he finally says, they say, you're not yet even 50 years old. And you say you've seen Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Which means the reason I saw Abraham is I am God from eternity. And so the culmination of all these ego and me culminate in chapter 8, verse 58, where he's very clear what he means by saying ego and me. He finally draws out its real meaning for us. And then in chapter 10, he says, the Father and I are one. Making very clear, he can claim, I am the I am, because my being is one in being with the Father. And that's what chapter 10 is all about, which I'd like to have a chance to read with you of how he's drawing that out. 
after all of chapter six, it culminates in chapter 10 with the restatement of his divinity, just like from the Passover through, from the first Passover in chapter two through chapter five, it culminates in his repeating that he's God, the Lord of the Sabbath. That's awesome. All right. Well, we'll have to end it there, Dr. Zacanikas. Would you mind closing us in prayer? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you have given us your Son, Jesus, who we accept as our Lord, our God, and our Savior. We know that you are only pleased by us when we come to you in faith. And so we ask in the name of Jesus, who you've given to us to believe, you've given us faith in him, you've given us the Holy Spirit. We ask you, Lord, give us sincere faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, God, and Savior, sincere faith and love for him in the Eucharist, sincere faith that makes us more zealously share this faith with everyone that they may experience Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We ask all of this, Heavenly Father, in union with the Immaculate Heart of Mary, through Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.